Recording music for films is different now than it was before digitalization, and that, in addition to why you must be a confident player and working with John Williams, is featured in part two. I suppose a lot of that had to do with digital recording. I know when prior to that, they would have to re-rack the film and sync up the, the whatever, the 20, yeah. 24 track recorders or whatever was used. Uh, but once digital recording um, came in, they had those measure counters, but they also had the ability to, to start a new track, a new take, excuse me, after uh, about two seconds, whereas before, if they wanted to do another take, there would be a minute or two maybe before yeah. they were ready for it in the, the control booth. That was a blessing and a curse for us tremendously. Yeah. Back in the TV days, I remember, like I said, I had a, I had a mini disc, you know, back in, the, <laughs> back in the 90s, and we would record a TV show, and when you're going to do a take, I would hit record. And you <laughs> and then they so they roll the tape back, and then they'd have to go back far enough, like Bill was saying, that there's a SIMTI code that lines everything up, and all these tracks have to get together before you start to record. So it had to be back far enough that everything got into sync, and then the tape would start playing, and then you'd eventually hear eight clicks, and then you'd play. Mm -hmm. And if after two seconds you hear, you know, a peg, they'd have to stop and. <laughs> and and each it was about 45 seconds before you could play again so when digital came in like bill said that you know it changed a lot of things a lot less i'm not going to call it time wasting but time processing a lot less and uh, now since they do what they call striping a lot of projects probably more than not where they do a separate session for strings maybe woodwinds at the same time and then a separate session for brass separate session for percussion so when we had four days of doubles the 10 to 1 2 to 5 we might have one day so we lost three days of work because it got so quote-unquote efficient oh, but the way okay. it works now is they'll say like okay so 4m1 or whatever and we play in bar 37 well, the strings are playing for 36 bars. Well, we go right to 37. Okay, ready? Two, three, four, and you're playing. Uh, let's do another one. Uh, trumpet's a little bit louder on the second beat. Click, 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 and then it's, it's that instantaneous. It's frustrating, actually, because sometimes they just start and we're like, wait, 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 wait. At least let us pick up our horns. <laughs> you know, so they give warning, and it's, it's a completely different deal than it was. Also, I would think just playing, especially if it's like a symphonic type score, playing a symphonic type score and not being able to hear the strings or the woodwinds to know who you're playing with, um, that would seem to be musically really difficult. I think it is. For me, it really is. Plus, you're hearing out of a little speaker instead of hearing these rooms that we play in. I'm sure you're going to want to talk about this, but they're the most amazing acoustic rooms that I've ever seen. And um, they're maybe 40 foot ceilings, 80 feet across maybe 50 feet deep. I, I may be off on that. It might be bigger. But they're so, they look ancient, but you can hear somebody snoring in the corner of the room during a take. You can hear anything that's happening, you will hear on the recording. And when you have a full orchestra playing in these rooms, there's nothing like it, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But when you're hearing it out of a little speaker, and, and a lot of times by the time we get there, something's off. Like the strings played something a little off from the track. So then we have to say, well, the strings aren't with the click. What do you want us to do? And 
So, you know, there's always that issue now with the stacking of recordings. And as simple as it seems, describe a click track, the purpose. The click track is uh, simply like uh, a metronome the players hear in their ear. So with everybody has a headset, if they're generally speaking, almost everything, most, most movies anyway, are done with a click track. And it's, it's a metronome, essentially, that's, that the players hear through their headsets. And it's been very carefully built to coordinate, to keep the music exactly where the composer and... I guess it would be the um, the director in their spotting sessions where they decide exactly where the music is going to be to keep it coordinated with the film exactly as they want it to be. Mm-hmm. Right. Very good. That's great. Um, like if you have, uh, if somebody's getting hit and you see up on the screen, but the chord changes off from that, you know, it's the way to line everything up and synchronize and especially since we're doing different passes where we're joining the strings, we have to be able to line up with them or with the uh, the electronic music, like the synthesizers that are laid in, pre-laid in. Everything has to really, you know, if you look at it digitally, it all has to line up where it's supposed to line up. And uh, that's the way to facilitate that. And they use it for, they, they put in what the composer is usually looking at, is a video and they used to use what they called stripes and all this stuff's built into the movie and they figure out let's put a streamer they call it like a green line that comes marching across the screen and at when that reaches a certain point that will be when the scene changes or something and so years past the composers were really good with just conducting free conducting they would be watching uh, f- like little white flutters that will give you like three flutters will give you the next uh, downbeat or something like that or the the streamers the red streamer for the end the green streamer for the beginning yellow streamers for certain things and all that stuff's built in they can turn them on and off and our job it's all the work's done by the time we get there we just play and then it's it's up to the the click being correct or the streamers being correct. And all that's really important because when we're in these huge rooms I mentioned, if I'm sitting in a symphony, like I'm I play in Santa Barbara Symphony, and I'll have, I don't know, a viola sitting maybe four feet in front of me, poor sap, but that close. But in a studio, because we have to be able to separate the sound, Bill front of Bill's bell is probably 12 to 15 feet away from the violas. And so acoustically, the sound's going to travel differently, and we're all have to aim to the microphones that are above the composer or the conductor. And um, so the click, because if I, we're relying on our ears, the horns are about 75 feet away, and they always sound way behind. Um, and I think they generally are. But <laughs> be that as I may, uh, if we're listening to them and playing off of what we hear, it won't be right. But if we all have a click and we all trust each other that we know how to get our sound to the podium at the right time, that's part of the the um, experience of recording. You have to have that knowledge. And people who don't generally record come in and they don't want to wear clicks. So they start playing by ear and it's it's very difficult to get everything together. Yeah. You know what Tom Stevens had to say about French horn, right? If God wanted to hear the French horn, he would have pointed the bell the other way. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, 
there's an expression, I don't think it's used in Europe, but it is, I've heard it used all over the United States, which is uh, if somebody is good under pressure, they're called a good red light player. And I think that comes from recording sessions in Hollywood, where literally after they do rehearsals, when they're actually going to record, there's a red light that comes on and that lets you know that you're going to record. It seems to me that with movies, basically you have to be perfect. Uh, That's the most important thing. How do you guys deal with pressure? I mean, are there times when you feel intense pressure or is it just like every day you just go and do it like a regular uh, day job? Well, gee, I've never heard John sound like he uh, felt like he was under pressure, frankly. But uh, I think the, um, the thing is, we try to play our best all the time. And when uh, the realization that, I mean, there's also a saying that your reputation is is on the line each time. I think the saying would be, you're only as good as your last take. That's right. That's it. I believe that. You're only as good as your last performance, yeah. 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 So in a sense, as far as the pressure is concerned, I, I, I think if, you're, if you feel good about your playing, you've got to have confidence. <laughs> And you gotta, you've got to have a reason for the confidence being there. It can't just be a cocky a BS sort of thing. But as any, even orchestral players, uh, on every performance that they do, they, they have to play with confidence. My God, especially brass players and, and most of all, the trumpet, trumpet player. Yeah, I think it's really good. Um, I think that I always try to stress that my requirement for myself is that I have to be prepared for you know, to be able to play a lot more than I'm called to play so that when I'm called to play, I'm only using maybe 70% of my skills. I don't want to ever be pushed to the 95% of my abilities, you know, so, and we have to be confident and like Bill said, not arrogant, but confident and confidence is built by, by successes. You know, you're, if you're always I, I'm not, I, 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 I can't do it. Then you're probably, you're right. You probably can't do it, mm-hmm. but um, I, I have seen Bill leading the trombones and we've had these things where there might be a, this, this very subtle little trombone choir thing. And it's one thing to play, play great. It's another thing to, when something's not going or if, if you don't know why, but the booth isn't, they want to do another one and another one and another one, another one. And it's, it's difficult not to start think that I'm doing something wrong, but you just have to continually keep your focus, keep your awareness. And I remember this one uh, trombone thing that you had, Bill, and every time it was perfect. Every time, every attack, every sound, every pitch was exactly as it should be. And then uh, we have an expression that's called shuffle the cup. You know, like you shuffle the magic cup and which which cup the ball's under. Oh, They'll um, say, now, can we hear this a little softer? Uh, can we hear this a little louder? Okay, let's do it again. You do it exactly the same. Okay, that's it. Very good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but you can't ever just fold. You just have to keep your keep your focus. And the same thing for multiple takes. And I think that's what, what separates the successful people. Anybody can record. I mean, this anybody can play an instrument and record. But to be successful on a, you know, we need the high 90s. Uh, if you're a baseball player and you bat 
350, you're doing really well. That's that's 35 out of 100 <laughs> notes correct, you know. <laughs> we, have to, we have to bet kind of in the in the high nines, you know. Yeah. Um, like, I, I like to think that it's around 98%, you know. And, uh, and if that's what happens, because there's a thing, Murphy's Law is the one take that you have a clam in is the one that's going to be in the picture. Right. So... It'd be yeah. best to not have a clam. <laughs> I, years ago, I, I had a couple of lessons with Vince DeRosa, the great horn player. And I think he's probably the most famous Hollywood horn player ever and incredibly accurate. And I had heard this story about him that years before that, there was this recording of Scheherazade conducted by uh, Erich Langsdorf. And there's a, a sort of a pretty scary, high, soft, you know, melodic horn solo. And they had to do 17 takes because of other problems. And every time was perfect. And after that, Leinstorff asked him if he wanted to come to the Boston Symphony and play principal horn in the Boston Symphony. And DeRosa said, I'm happy here. Thanks very much. And so I asked him about that. And I said, you know, what what was that like? And he said, you know, the hard thing was was 17 times trying to play it a little bit differently every time, you mm. know, to, to, to add something musical so there's not just a repetition. Boy, that's something. That's really something. And that's confidence, too. I didn't realize that came from uh, Leinsdorf, uh, that story. But uh, Vince told told me the same thing just in general, that like if he has to do something repeatedly, that other people may not hear it, but he does something a little different. He's, he's thinking of something a little differently each time. Just to make it better. And more interesting. That's marvelous, yeah. I heard about this years later, but early on I had an opportunity to work with um, John Debney for, I don't remember what the project was, but I was playing first trumpet and Dan Savant was a contractor, wonderful guy. So we're doing this thing, came up this cue and this really hard trumpet solo, this really hard thing and just extended, ended high and everything. And it had a lot of technique stuff in it. So we rehearsed it and we did the take. And I thought the take was fine. But they asked for another one. So I did another one. And then we moved on. Well, I find out years later that after we finished playing it, John looked at Danny and said, that sounded really good. You think he could do it again? <laughs> like, and Taylor, Dan said, let's find out. <laughs> so they were, he was, it was like, I didn't know, but I was, I was definitely trial under fire. And, uh, and then when I did, it's like, yeah, I guess he could. And they went on. But that kind of thing can happen. On the other side of the glass, you have no idea why they're doing something again. If you're constantly doing it over and over, then it's, it's hard not to second guess. But you can't second guess. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you start to erode uh, your confidence, that's, that's what we really need, in, uh, aside from the ability. You both have played under some great composer conductors um and so let me just ask you about a couple of them what's it what was it like or what is it like to play under john williams it's terrific it's a wonderful experience he knows exactly what he wants to hear and he hears everything and he is uh, such an extraordinary musician any comment that he makes makes a difference in the performance and he doesn't have to do a lot of takes, generally. And he doesn't change uh, much along the way. He doesn't, uh, he knows what he's written, and he is, and that's what he wants to hear. 
He wants to hear it the way that he has envisioned it or conceived it. And, uh, and he's, in addition to that, he's uh, an extraordinary gentleman. He is so appreciative of the orchestra and uh, everyone in it. That's my experience, that, that he's just terrific. Yeah, he's a marvelous man, marvelous man. And the other thing that along with that, all of those things, everybody in the orchestra feels the same way. They have the understanding of who he is and, and what he expects and everything. And when John gets up on the podium, the quality of playing, the level of game goes way up. Everybody's <laughs> really? on the top of their game. It's, it's really pretty remarkable. Um, and you have to imagine the hardest thing you've ever heard, John Wright, well, it was read as well as you hear it on the recording. I mean, seriously. Uh, and that's even before the days of having the music posted ahead of time. It's going to be right. If it's written right, it's going to be that way. Mm-hmm. And and John has a, a way with his words that <laughs> the way he says things, it's it's always intriguing to me. Uh, a, g- a gentlemanly way of saying things. You know, but, you know, come, come, so, so, and uh, husband your muscles, and uh, just these little sayings that, uh, and when he starts, it's always, so, so, and then he starts, you know, so he has all these little things that we come to expect, but when, um, a lot of times, when you're working with someone, and that and it stops, people go back to their phone, and, and they, they are doing their Sudoku or whatever, back in the day, reading a paper, there's none of that. Um, he even asks, I've only seen him get slightly angry maybe once in all the years i worked with him and part of the thing was we came back from breaks and people were eating the strings right in front of him and um and he that really bothered him and he said something to the effect of let's eat when we're not working or something like that and then it was done and we went on hmm. but uh, very, but very appreciative of the results he gets and uh, i might disagree with you a little bit bill i know you know we do we do some takes of things, you know, 15 to 20 times. <laughs> just, it's kind of, on the big ones especially, where we just keep doing them over and over. And, and uh, or at least that's, that's what it feels like when we're back there playing them. And, but each time, he, he, he brings so much to the, to the table. And, and you know you can trust exactly what he wants and you want to give him exactly what he's asking for. Well, I agree with that. I didn't uh, mean to, to say that, uh, that he always... Uh, got what he wanted in a few takes. But if he has, um, he doesn't change what he's written. He doesn't uh, do a lot of, well, let's try this. Oh, I agree completely. I'm sorry, I misunderstood. Yeah, because a lot of people do that, and that's a whole other discussion where you do something 40 times because it's like, well, on the second beat, (laughs) let's do this a little bit. Okay, now this time let's do, and it's just this nuance that it's like, oh my gosh, at the end of the day, you're never going to hear it. But you're right, that's true. Do you have other composers that you really enjoy playing for? Um, Alan Silvestri, I love playing for. Alexandra Desplat is a, a real treat to work for also. And, pretty, you know, everybody has said, that, who's your favorite composer? Who's your favorite section? But, you know, for the most part, I love everybody we're standing in front of. We've been through, you know, James Horner was amazing. Um, a lot of people have passed. You know, Michael Kamen was crazy man but he was i really enjoyed working for him and jerry goldsmith yeah he was great you know you know all those seven things and joe mcneely bruce broughton i mean just endless number of people bring different elements to the table and it's 
it's a real treat to do what we do, I have to say. Bill, do you have any other favorites? I would agree. I think that um, as far as other favorites is concerned, uh, well, we had talked about Randy Newman earlier. He's certainly one of the favorites. But uh, And there have been other people who, um, like Don Davis, another that comes to mind that you would think musically would have uh, been a, a bigger name was uh, Arthur Rubenstein, who just uh, unfortunately, uh, he never had the, uh, the personality, I suppose, to interface with his people that he was working for, the producers and directors, but always a great writer. And uh, Bill Ross is another one that, that uh, would come to mind. And James Newton. Hans Zimmer, how is, he's quite well known over in Europe. Hans is very prolific, and he has a, a very large stable of composers that he has. He does a lot of stuff. Does a lot of stuff. Very effective work. When both of you came to Los Angeles, did you have to struggle financially for a while, or, or were you able to start working right away? I mean, how how was it to break in? Was it difficult? Well, I know Bill said he he, he you, I know you said you worked pretty quickly. I was I hadn't even turned twenty one yet when I moved out here. I knew Tony, and Tony, you were great with me, you know, let me, the, we, I still study with you a little bit when I came out here, but um, you got me an uh, opportunity to play with the Valley Symphony with you, and then when you stopped doing then I continued that, but I, uh, my thing was, I threw newspapers for the Daily News as a college graduate for four years, so that I didn't have to get a quote-unquote day job, and uh, I didn't know people, Nelson Hat was one I had met wonderful trumpet player. I'm sure you both knew him. Mm -hmm. And um, I met him through a a lesson with Jimmy Stamp because Jimmy had that open door policy. So Nelson had a lesson before me. So I heard his lesson. He stayed for mine and, and, uh, and we became friends after that. But so he was really uh, instrumental in kind of passing my name around when he could. And in the eighties, it was after the strike. So there was probably less work than there had been certainly, but I didn't work right away. I did rehearsal bands and and Latin bands and weddings and quintets and the California Brats Ensemble. And then pretty early on, I don't know if you were instrumental in that or not, but uh, met Irving Bush and he started using me as a sub with the L.A. Phil. Great. And, um, and then I think where I met Bill, I think maybe where we met, and maybe I could be wrong, but I think when I had the opportunity to do uh, the ballets when they came into town because I'm pretty sure you were playing principal at the time, right? With the ABT and Joffrey and I think maybe the very first time we we met at all was uh, I happen to recall at the club called Carmelo's, mm-hmm. and I think you had only been in town a I I don't know my my thought is that it's a month or two at the time, and you came in to hear um, Les Hooper uh, maybe a band. I'm. It might have been Les's band. I'm not sure. I was. I was going to guess that I was subbing on Bob Florence. Bob band. Florence. That would have been the other one. Yeah. Maybe. And, wow. And uh, and that it was at Carmelo's, that the club yeah. uh, on which used to oh, be Van on Nuys, Van Nuys. Right. Yeah. Right. But I think that's that's the very first time we met. Now where you are now, uh, you're doing a lot of studio work, but well, you were <laughs> until COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is a this is a black hole this year. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think before the recording work, uh, Los Angeles used to have 
uh, I don't know if Bill participated in these or not, but they had like clinics. Dick Grove's Music School was a on Ventura Boulevard. It was a converted dry cleaners by Cold Water and Ventura, and the music school that they had would teach composers. Um, they had jingles classes. They had small ensemble classes, TV classes, motion picture. Um, they had all these classes to teach people, and they had notable people teaching. And the thing that was great for me was they needed players to play the music that they were composing. And really high tech, you know, you'd have a Walkman on the podium, and that was the recording that you did. But with my first opportunity to learn or to have the opportunity to record and play with a click and, and be accountable for you know, live performance, you're still accountable, but stuff can get by. And you, did I hear that? But it's it's proof every time you play back. But I, I did a lot of that, and that was a really good experience. And I really liked it. And I, I, I could pretty much read pretty much anything, you know. And uh, and I think that helped. And and I had some background in styles, not a tremendous amount. I'm not a big uh, jazz improviser, but if I had to, I could, and hopefully not get shot. Um, and I did that and, you know, it's kind of, it was tough, uh, financially, especially when I had kids and, and still wasn't, wasn't really working that much. So 10 years period of, I still was working. I can't complain about anything that I did. And I had a lot of different opportunities to do things and different styles of playing and all, which I think lent itself to 91 when I, when I kind of did some mainstream recording, you know, Played on three movies, th- maybe even three sessions total for the year, and then went to like five, and then eight, and and then in '93 or four, when um, I was more or less discovered by Dennis McCarthy and and brought me in for Deep Space Nine and and Next Generation and all those Star Trek things for the the following years, and that kind of gave me a foothold, and other people heard and uh, referred me to other contractors and and that's kind of where where it started and and here we are 30 years later in the bonus room john and bill talk about how their daily schedules can vary and why they must be very consistent players 